Hi, I'm Jennifer, the producer of Talking Pets, and I want to thank ExpressVPN for supporting our podcast. You probably don't think much about internet privacy on your own home network, but these days malicious actors are watching everywhere. And did you know that some of the precautions you may take, like using incognito mode, still allow your online activity to be traced? And even if you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can see every single site you've ever visited. ExpressVPN makes sure you stay more anonymous online. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared among thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected. Thankfully, VPN providers like ExpressVPN will secure your privacy and protect your information. Visit expressvpn.com feds and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com feds for an extra three months free on your one-year package. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Happy birthday to the Declaration of Independence in the United States of America. In any other year, by July 4th, the justices of the United States Supreme Court would have finished their work and hopped a plane out of D.C. to various summer relaxation spots. But like so much else, the normal pattern is altered in the year of corona. The virus resulted in the courts having a late set of arguments in May and preempted whatever summer retreats the nine might have been planning. The court's term is still not finished. In particular, the trio of cases involving President Trump's efforts to keep Congress and the New York District Attorney from seeing his financial records will be decided next week. But the court issued a flurry of opinions in much-awaited blockbuster cases in the last few days, all five to four, all with Chief Justice John Roberts in the majority, alternately with the four more conservative or the four more liberal members of the court. Those decisions revealed sharp fault lines in the court on critical hot-button issues such as abortion and religion, and the most important case might be the one that the press gave the least attention to. Outside the court, the virus raged on with depressing new momentum, including increases in numbers of cases in 40 of the 50 states. And a new scandal hit the Trump administration with reports that the president had been briefed about Russia's payments of bounties to Taliban-linked militants to kill United States troops. But those developments took a backseat to the announcements from within the court. And to analyze the court's big week, I'm joined by a fairly amazing panel of court watchers and constitutional scholars. They are, first, Daya Lithwick. Daya is a senior editor at Slate, where she writes Supreme Court Dispatches and Jurisprudence, and where she hosts their fantastic Supreme Court podcast, Amicus. In 2018, she won the Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. The judges described her as the nation's best legal commentator for the last two decades. Daya, welcome to Talking Feds. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Harry. Next, Ron Klain. Ron Klain is an advisor to the Biden campaign. He's spent over 30 years in the highest perches of government, including as chief of staff to two vice presidents, Joe Biden and Al Gore. Chief of Staff to Attorney General Janet Reno, Chief Counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee, and the Ebola Czar under the Obama-Biden administration. 
Ron, welcome back, as always, to Talking Feds. Thanks for having me, Harry. And finally, Lawrence Tribe, the Carl M. Loeb University Professor and Professor of Constitutional Law Emeritus at Harvard Law School, a status he took two days ago after 52 years on the faculty. He is the world's leading authority on the United States Constitution and has been called the single most influential person in constitutional law outside of the justices themselves. His hornbook, American Constitutional Law, one of 14 books he has authored, is the indispensable authority for students of the Constitution. He's also argued 36 cases before the Supreme Court, co-founded the American Constitution Society, taught a who's who of prominent U.S. lawyers, judges, and political figures, and testified so often in Congress on important legal issues that Senator Ted Kennedy once referred to him as the 101st Senator. Lawrence Tribe, welcome back to Talking Feds, and thanks especially for joining us on such a big week for you personally. Thanks for having me, Harry. Pleasure to be here. All right. So let's start with the court's opinion in the June medical case, the abortion case. Now, that case concerned the constitutionality of a Louisiana law that required any doctor performing abortions to have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles. And that requirement, the lower court found, would have resulted in only a single doctor at a single clinic being allowed to perform abortions in the entire state. It was also a carbon copy of a law from Texas that the court had struck down in 2016. And the court struck this one down as well this week. The four liberals on similar grounds as in the Texas case and Chief Justice Roberts joining the judgment on the narrower ground that the previous decision controlled, even if it was wrong. All right. So from the standpoint of abortion rights, it strikes me it's very much uh, on the one hand, on the other kind of case. And actually, both Dahlia and Larry have written about it this week. So, Dahlia, you you wrote in Slate that the concurrence that Roberts authored that brought the fifth vote along cloaked a major blow to the left in what appeared to be a small victory for it. What do you mean by that? I think what I meant principally is that the case that the court heard almost decided four years ago to the day, Whole Women's Health, the Texas case, had been written by Justice Stephen Breyer to really, I think, put teeth for the first time in a very, very amorphous test that had emerged in 1992 in the Casey case. So in Casey, you'll remember, the the court reaffirmed the core holding of Roe v. Wade, but went from this strict trimester Mester test to a test that in some ways I think only existed maybe in Sandra Day O'Connor's head or somewhere in Anthony Kennedy's head. A state can go ahead and regulate abortion. And in fact, in Casey, they upheld a whole bunch of regulations, but they can't create what's called an undue burden. And that open the floodgates for states to, in effect, regulate abortion out of existence if they wanted to. And we've seen the flood of regulations that have come in the wake of that, where the state says these are called trap laws, right? Targeted regulation of abortion providers. And these are the kinds of laws that say, oh, you know, we're not going to criminalize abortion. We're not going to punish women who get them or doctors who perform them. But you're going to have to retrofit all your clinics in the state so that they look like ambulatory surgical centers, you're going to have to have these admitting privileges laws. And all of these things had the effect, of course, around the country of shuttering clinics. But the court 
really had never helped us to understand what an undue burden was. Whole Women's Health in 2016, Justice Stephen Breyer for the first time said, okay, here's the deal. These two laws in Texas, one that you've just described, Harry, which is the admitting privileges requirement, the other, the ambulatory surgical centers requirement, if they do not benefit women's health at all, then we're going to put a heavy thumb on the scale and say, yes, we're going to still do the undue burden analysis. But if there's no benefit to maternal health, that's part of the equation. So he changed the test in such a way, I think, that he was hoping that courts could pierce truly pretextual abortion regulations that only existed to close clinics. All right. So let me try to put this in concrete form in Texas. So as you say, we had had this fairly amorphous undue burden test, otherwise phrased as a substantial obstacle, but that did give rise to a series of regulations that seemed really to be about restricting or diminishing the numbers of abortions and gave make-weight arguments about why they were all for the women's good. But so in World Women's Health, Breyer says, you know what, this idea of admitting privileges, it doesn't actually help women at all. So we're going to amplify the so-called substantial obstacle test by also asking, are they really doing anything to help women? And if they're not, that's going to make it more likely to invalidate. Is that fair? That's exactly right. So back to your thesis and Slate, a major blow to the left. So what is the major blow to the left that the new opinion in the abortion case from this term, June Medical, represents? Well, I think the chief justice is very clear. He says right up front, I thought whole women's health was wrongly decided then. I still think it was wrongly decided. He does a long, I think, very persuasive love story about the need for stare decisis, that we have to give legal force to decisions that came before, regardless of the composition of the court changing. And then he essentially says, okay, this is literally identical to the Texas law, so I cannot tolerate the just unremitting chutzpah of the Fifth Circuit overturning whole women's health without my blessing. So, no. But he doesn't say whole women's health was correctly decided. He says it wasn't. And he, as we have just been discussing, takes out the portion that I think Breyer had added to make a more robust test. That's gone. He says, we're going to go back to the Casey rule about undue burden. And I'm going to find that because there was an undue burden in the Texas regs, there's also one in Louisiana. I guess to be blunt. How can you say you believe in stare decisis and then say, I don't agree with Whole Woman's Health, I believe in Casey? Uh, It's just a question about how he gets to pick and choose and how he gets to be the arbiter of what undue burden is in the next case. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a theme for the week. And I'd like to get to Larry's somewhat countervailing thesis, but just to understand Roberts, and this is a real question. It's a little bit Hard to understand. I wonder if Ron or anybody has a view on this. There are two parts to world women's health. There's the balancing test and the approach that you said, Dahlia, and that he basically does away with. I think Alito in dissent persuasively says that's not the law anymore. So what's left is the undue burden, the finding that there'd only be one abortion provider in all of the state. And as to that, he is saying The case is wrongly decided. I'll go with it, but the case is wrongly decided. So is he not actually saying that having that kind of restriction 
wouldn't be if you were writing on a fresh slate a substantial burden on a woman's right to abortion? It seems to me that he's obviously saying that we've got five justices, of whom the chief justice is one, who don't basically believe that a woman has a right to determine her reproductive destiny. That's not news. It's important, however, to accept yes for an answer on the occasion when we get a fifth vote that will go the right way. When Dahlia says Breyer put teeth in the undue burden test by advocating a kind of balance of benefits against burdens, that's not teeth, it's soft gums. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think you can really chew very well on that. And I said this in what I've written about it. Of course, Roberts leaves a scary amount of wiggle room to uphold restrictions on abortion. Duh, that's not news. What he does, however, is give us a little bit by saying that if there is a substantial obstacle to a woman's ability to terminate a pregnancy before viability, you can't balance that away by putting benefits to either the woman or the fetus on the other side of the scale. That part is good news. Now, we're not likely to find cases in which Roberts vote with us in the future. That's true. But he has not made things worse. He's made them better. And if, and I think everything depends on this, if there is a big blue wave in November so that the court doesn't go further right, but preserves its balance or tips slightly to the left, we now have an opinion by a justice who doesn't believe in abortion rights that can be used as a precedent for abortion rights. I take that as good news. The glass is not two-thirds empty, but one-third full. And it seems to me that we ought to take the best of what we've got and build on it and pat the guy on the back rather than sock him in the nose when he does what we hoped he would do. And the best he could possibly do, he's not going to turn around and say, oh, I was wrong a couple of years ago in whole women's health when I dissented. There was no hope of getting that. This is the best that could have emerged from this case, and it's better than nothing. Well, I will never challenge Larry Tribe on the question of constitutional law, but I may dispute the question of what is news here. So it certainly shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that there are five justices on this court as currently constituted that would substantially rip up protection of women's reproductive rights. But whether that's news or not to careful court watchers, I think it is news a little bit to the public at large and to the country as a whole. And I think what happened here was I think Chief Justice Roberts did his best to cloak that news as effectively as possible as he could in an election year. If you think back, Dahlia began this conversation by talking about Casey. And I remember Casey very well as not just a matter of constitutional law, but as a political decision that came down in the summer of an election year and electrified suburban voters and led Bill Clinton to win that election in no small part by moving voters who had been traditionally Republican in traditionally Republican states like Pennsylvania and New Jersey into the Democratic column around choice. And I think it's hard to look at Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in this case as much other than an effort to try to obviate that this year. And so I think it's an effort to put a nice, starry, decisive facade on an acknowledgement that there are five members of this court who are intent on undoing protection for women's reproductive rights. And so I think it's kind of a news blockade in front of the real news here, where I do 100% agree with Larry is, this just reinforces how much is at stake in this election this fall, both in terms of the next president who will pick 
the next appointments to the Supreme Court and the next Senate that will decide whether or not those justices get confirmed. I agree completely with Ron. That is, if the Chief Justice had provided a fifth vote to overrule Whole Woman's Health, uphold the Louisiana law, say that the Texas law now, for all practical purposes, is fine as well, that would have been a dramatic blow. But I think either thing he did makes it absolutely clear, if we're at all good at explaining things to the public, that the reproductive freedom of women to determine their own destiny hangs by the narrowest of threads. That is, if he had said that even the Louisiana law is okay, a lot of people would have, I think, been grievously hurt and would have said, it's now gone. Roe v. Wade is gone, and the election may not really restore it. Now people say, I think rightly, that Roe v. Wade can be preserved if we win this election. And if we win this election, it can be preserved best by legislation that makes Roe v. Wade the law of the land with a president who signs that statute. That's the way to secure it, regardless of future appointments. Either way, the politics is going to be dominant. I completely agree with both Larry and Ron, actually, that John Roberts is the deftest, most savvy political operator on the Supreme Court, without a doubt. And I think, to his massive credit, he takes the institution of the court deeply seriously. He cares about the dignity and the integrity of the court. And I think that is a lodestar for him. And and I do credit him with that. And it's hard to see June Medical separate from the DACA rescission and Title VII, a whole bunch of cases where he has surprised us for exactly, I think, the reasons that Ron laid out, which is in an election year when you've got the financial records cases and abortion and all the religious rights cases and the Little Sisters, all of it, everything's on the docket. He was not going to have a barnstorming 5-4 conservative liberals year. But I just want to make one point that I think is maybe subtle, but I think it's important. And that is, yes, John Roberts is masterful at taking the temperature down and at making the court appear to be steering a moderate course. But I think that in almost every case that I've just mentioned, he does that by either doing a small thing that sets up the big thing in future, right? We just saw that this week in Espinoza. He had done the same thing in Trinity Lutheran. He does the small move, then the big move. It looks like it's a nothing, never a nothing. But the other thing, and I think this is important, is in all the line of cases I just talked about, I think there's this through line that says just don't lie to me, right? In in DACA, he said, don't lie to me. Do your work better. Don't give me a C-plus paper. In Title VII, you know, he just doesn't, and that was certainly in the Affordable Care Act cases and certainly the case last year in the census case where he's mostly reprimanding the Trump administration for shoddy work. And so I want to be very careful that sometimes you can reverse engineer these rulings. You can certainly do it in DACA and do exactly what he's telling you to do, and you will win next time. And that's how I class June Medical. I want to take the the win. I understand. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. I think he has very, very much said, here's how to do it right next time. And that's not nothing. Let me offer a related through line, another through line, which is what he's done in the majority opinions. I think this also applies to Steel of Law, which we're going to discuss, is he'll define in seemingly part and parcel of the breezy reasoning of the case 
what is the sort of default assumption and what is the outlier in ways that have really big implications. If we see this as an outlier in the sense that, come on, you can't have stronger presidential force than something that he says himself is word for word the same, but the default is Casey and not an inch more, then it really raises the question of what this portends going forward. What kind of provision will he or the court see that they really would be ready to invalidate? Take a step back and, and about what Louisiana did here. It's, it's pretty damn cheeky. There's a law that's been struck down and they basically just do the same thing to serve it up. And we have similar statutes that fly in the face of previous rulings for the court. And so a real overall effort among the states to really put these things to the test. And if what emerges from this case is a general rule that if you're an inch outside of Casey, well, then you don't, the super duper precedent principle doesn't apply, then it gets very hard to conceive of the kind of provision that in fact will make the courts stand up and say, no, that's, that really is a substantial obstacle. You know, we have to remember that not all obstacles to abortion are going to take the form of pretend health regulations, these trap laws. There are these laws that focus on whether the fetus has a heartbeat, whether its brain waves are detectable, whether the pregnancy has lasted 12 or 20 weeks. The fact that Roberts is treating viability versus non-viability as a critical part of the precedent may mean that he will separate himself from Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Thomas and Alito when it comes to all of those laws. And they are the ones that probably pose in the next decade or so the most serious pressure on women's reproductive rights. And they really will be coming to the court, those states. For sure, for sure. I mean, part of what's happened from the Trump is, is an emboldening of, of states. Right. But I think there's an important point to be made about Dahlia's quite correct point that Roberts is basically saying, give me a break. Don't lie to me. Don't pretend that your reasons are other than what they are. He's said that over and over again. He said it in the census case. He said it in the DACA case. It's very important. But that has two sides. One side is to say, well, that simply tells the government, do a better job, tell the truth, don't screw around with the court, and maybe you'll succeed. But it also sends a much broader signal to the nation that lying is not the way the government is supposed to operate. That is one of the most fundamental problems with this administration is the way it has made lying the ordinary course of business. An administration that lies as easily as it breathes has got to be resisted, and it can be resisted by a change in the culture that basically reaffirms the importance of telling the truth as a fundamental norm. And I think when the court contributes to that norm, it makes a contribution that transcends these particular areas of doctrine, whether DACA or the census or abortion. That'll be a very interesting theme for how it plays out in the tax cases. All right, let's just take a minute to talk about the dissents. So Thomas couldn't be more unabashed about wanting to undo Roe and basically everything we might call substantive due process. But it does seem to me that Alito and arguably everyone but Thomas at least 
gives lip service to the notion of Casey as super duper precedent and are at least absent a further personnel change in the court are not looking to say the words, maybe do the functional equivalent, but not say the words Roe v. Wade or Casey is overruled. Am, am I overly sanguine, do you think, in that reading? Well, you could say it's sanguine or, or you could say it's pessimistic. I mean, if the only one is willing to be truthful about it and, and to say we're going to gut women's rights is Thomas. And if all the others, including Roberts, are prepared to say we'll kill those rights through death by a thousand cuts, then to go to Ron's point, the court may not do us the favor of activating liberals as much as it would if it were to say outright Roe v. Wade is hereby overruled. Because whether it uses those words or not, it can hollow out the effective precedent of women's reproductive autonomy. And the question really is whether it does it in a way that really generates the kind of backlash that would be generated if the court were to be forthright about it. Yeah, I mean, I guess my mind, the question is, Chief Justice Roberts really standing here for truth in these cases or just for a certain kind of panache in these cases? So I don't know that, I mean, I, I, I take the point that Larry's making, that I is making, that he's saying, just don't lie to me, just don't lie to me, just don't lie to me. But there is a certain kind of slickness about what lies do and don't pass muster with the Chief Justice. And here, I'd say in June Medical, in some ways, it's a fundamentally dishonest decision in the sense that what Roberts is saying, look, don't embarrass me. Don't ask me to say that something's exactly the same if it's really different. But, you know, wink, 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 wink. There's a lot of laws that myself and four other justices here are prepared to uphold. And in some sense, as Larry alluded to, the only one of the five, the conservative justices that's being truly honest, I think, is Justice Thomas. And I think the other four, we're going to see what happens when the rubber hits the road after this election, potentially with personnel changes before this election, certainly with personnel changes after the election at the Supreme Court. We're just going to see how all this sorts out in the future. You know, one point worth making, even though the laws were written in exactly the same way in Louisiana and Texas, Alito spends page after page explaining that the issue is not what the law says, but what the effect of the law is in terms of medical practice and the demand for abortion and the demographics of Louisiana and Texas. And he does a fairly reasonable job. He doesn't fool any of us, I'm sure, but he, he puts on quite a performance about why this is not exactly the same as Texas and why, if he wanted to, Roberts could easily have written an intellectually coherent opinion saying it may look the same, but it's really different. And I think that I agree with you, Ron, that he wants to kind of panache, but it, he's also making a choice not to go with somebody like Alito, who is willing to count angels on the head of a pin until they fall off. And, and this is a good place, I think, to point out that if the Alito dissent or the Kavanaugh dissent had held the day, and this must have been somewhere in the Chief Justice's thinking, then the court would have been forced to act as some kind of super legislature reviewing every state. Well, Louisiana is different because it closes two out of three clinics as opposed to 10 out of the 20 in Texas. And the fifth doctor didn't really act in good faith when he tried to get admitting privileges. I mean, this is a complete discarding of the district court's finding of fact in this case, and Alito setting himself up to say, let me tell you what a good faith doctor seeking admitting privileges would have looked like. And it just 
leads me, if we're talking to the dissenters, inexorably to Brett Kavanaugh, who uh, somebody said to me today, the only woman who appears anywhere in June Medical is Susan Collins, who's somehow being channeled by Brett Kavanaugh, who refuses to write the sentence, I think that Roe v. Wade should be overturned because then Susan Collins would be a liar, but instead says, let's go ahead and see if all three of the clinics close in Louisiana, and then we could find an undue birth. I mean, talk about slippery analysis and holding the court out as an institution that is going to go state by state, looking at doctor by doctor and determining whether the district court made an error in their good faith. I mean, that can't be anyone's definition of what a Supreme Court does. One other really important point is that the court could have made things much harder for most of us by simply saying in a way that would sound technical and in a way that several of the justices were ready to say, oh, doctors and clinics don't have standing to argue in this case because they are not the ones who are directly hurt. In fact, Kavanaugh and Alito in particular makes the argument that the clinic and doctors have a conflict of interest and that they really don't represent the women fully. If they had done that, it would have been virtually impossible to challenge all of these trap laws in state by state on a particular basis of how much burden they impose, because the only people withstanding would have been the women who are deterred from invoking the right. All right. Well, we're going to see, and the election will be a big part of it, where June Medical winds up being in the constellation of abortion jurisprudence. It's time now for our sidebar feature. Typically, we have one often well-known person explain a specific timely concept. Today, we're changing it up, and we're having 10 different people expound on a timely concept. I think you'll get the point. I'm Anne-Marie Slaughter. Larry, working for you after I graduated from law school uh, inspired my career as a law professor and really as someone dedicated to public service. You're a towering figure in the law, but you've never forgotten that law not only constitutes the people, it serves them. Hey, it's Jeff Tubin. So the first day of con law with LT, he says, your homework is to read the constitution. It's easy, you can do it during the commercials. And he was right. And he's been right throughout my education as a student, as a research assistant, as a journalist who's following him, and as a citizen who is grateful for him and his many, many contributions to our country. I'm Martha Minow, and Larry Tribe recruited me to join the Harvard Law School faculty nearly 40 years ago. How fitting that we have the chance to salute Larry in 2020. Larry's always had 2020 vision or better when it comes to law, justice, persuasion, and Larry's decency and kindness and friendship are gifts I will always treasure. Hi, Larry. Harold Coe from Yale. Congratulations on this new chapter. Let me speak for all the students who didn't get to know you well in law school, but benefited from your mentorship afterwards. You're the best. Congratulations. This is Jonathan Massey, a lawyer in Washington, D.C. Congratulations, Larry, on a stellar legal and academic career that has made the world a better place for so many people and also for being one of the most caring and generous people on the planet. My name is Bob Shrum, and Larry and I have been friends for 63 years. He's changed America for the better, as few others ever have, and he changed my life and gave me my dream when he sent me off to politics. Hey, it's Jamie Raskin. Um, 
calling in with a lot of love for Larry Tribe. I got to tell you that I don't know that there's anybody who could be more grateful than me because I found in Larry Tribe's class my girlfriend who became my wife. Uh, therefore, I guess I owe my wife and my family to his class. I found my career because I fell in love with constitutional law and I became a constitutional law professor. Rock on, Professor Tribe, and long may you run. This is Ron Klein. Larry Tribe could set his students' heads spinning when he taught them about the Constitution's geometry, and he could set their hearts on fire when he taught them about its purpose and its meaning. He changed my life. He was the best teacher I ever had. Hi, Larry. It's Adam Schiff. I just want to thank you so much for being such a wonderful friend, inspiration, professor, champion of our democracy and our institutions. I can't tell you how much it means to me to be able to call you friend and to be able to call you and get your advice and your counsel. It's safe to say no law professor in this country has had a greater influence on the development of the law or new laws in Congress. Uh, thank you for everything, my wonderful friend and inspiration. This is Kathleen Sullivan, Larry Tribe, constitutional genius, scholar, advocate, advisor but also the greatest professor I ever had. And it's hard to imagine Harvard Law School without Larry Tribe teaching there. And yet he will teach on each and every day through all the students he has taught. And we were so very lucky to have him. Before our next segment, I just want to take a moment to thank ExpressVPN for supporting the show. Data privacy is very important to me, both personally and as a producer for Talking Feds. And while I had previously thought I was doing a good job at data privacy, I feel so much safer now that I use ExpressVPN. And regardless of device, whether it's my computer, tablet, or smartphone, ExpressVPN keeps my privacy protected. It is also the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It's rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and more. ExpressVPN secures your privacy and protects your information. Visit expressvpn.com slash feds and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. So protect your online activity today with a VPN that we trust to secure our privacy. That's expressvpn.com slash feds. expressvpn.com slash feds to learn more. All right. Well, that puts a lot of pressure on one of our panelists. Oh, God. But let's move now. Harry, am I am I allowed to say two words about that? Do you have a right of rebuttal? Sure. Rebuttal, yeah. I was thinking of funny things to say, but I I, I just got teary-eyed when I heard all that stuff from Anne-Marie and Jeff and Martha and Harold and, and Jonathan and Bob and Jamie and Ron and Adam and Kathleen. It's, it's just You ambushed me very effectively, I must say. Um, thank you. You bet. Can I say one thing too, Harry? Sure. I just want to say that... Uh, Where were you? Well, yeah, nobody invited me to be in the mashup, but I, I, I would like to say really, truly, and Kathleen Sullivan taught me con law, so I was one of those people who was a, a Larry Tribe grandbaby. Your tribe number is two or something, yeah, right? Exactly. I'm I'm one degree of separation, but I, I want to say in all seriousness that Larry, you know, was a legend my whole time coming up through law school when I was a young Supreme Court reporter. And out of the blue, he probably doesn't remember, but he sent me the kindest note years and years ago that was just 
absolutely embodies what everyone is saying about his generosity. And I just want to add, because it's, I think, a non-trivial observation, that Larry has been the spine of resistance Twitter (laughs) in the legal world for so, so, so many people. I'm not sure he fully appreciates that there are so many law students and young lawyers who hang on his every tweet. And that's probably not something that Larry thought he would be doing at this stage of the game. But on behalf of so many of us, I'm so grateful. Thank you, Dahlia. The encomia are much deserved. All right. So, Sila Law versus CFPB is the case that I was suggesting up front might actually be 10 years from now seen as the biggest opinion and decision of the term. Let me try to set up this arcane constitutional issue, but very important. But it's it's set right in the middle of an important debate between right and left and and sort of the culture wars that began during the Reagan era and the founding of the Federalist Society. But okay, we have a textualist court here. So what text, what words are they interpreting? Only these, that the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. So the the advocates and adherents to the so-called unitary executive theory, which you've heard about, really point exactly to that and unroll all kinds of potential corollaries from just that notion. And indeed, John Roberts, in his opinion here, comes damn close to endorsing it in toto, again, with this kind of grandfathering exception for things that have already been decided. But he comes out of the box and says, this is the important thing about the executive and the executive only. All the power resides in that one person. And so the case concerns the constitutionality of a provision that made the head of the CFPB a single person who could be removed only for cause. And that chafed among adherence to a unitary executive because they think it's a, maybe the, but certainly a concomitant of this sole possession of the executive power that the president can fire somebody for good reason, no reason, any reason at all, as opposed to for cause. And that that very existence of a feature like that sticks in the craw of the sort of purists who want to see what, as uh, Justice Kagan said in her dissent, a kind of very simplistic three silos of government. All right, so we have the holding of the case, which is that it goes too far for some reason and violates the separation of powers, another word that isn't in the Constitution but is derived from the structures therein, to have a single person with a lot of power at the head of the newly created Consumer Protection Finance Bureau who can only be removed for cause, and the president can't just say willy-nilly, you're out. And in fact, the holding of the case is the president can say willy-nilly, you're out. Let, Let me start actually with the cultural point that I've made. Why is this a big article of faith for conservatives? This is a big happy day. Why is it such a big deal to this you know, now sort of second generation of conservative scholars this principle of unfettered removal power on the part of the president? Well, I think it's a big deal because they want to dismantle the administrative state, the alphabet soup of agencies, the FTC, the, the, all of those agencies, many of which have significant independence from the president, either because of limits on the removal power or for some other reason. They basically want to sort of Steve Bannon-like mash it all. 
And why, Larry? How is that consistent with general conservative attitudes? Because they don't believe in government. They think government is bad. Ronald Reagan says the most scary words in the language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. And if you can take the government apart, take the federal government apart in particular, and rely on private initiative and maybe state and local government to deal with coronavirus and everything else, you've achieved your objective of undoing the New Deal. I mean, it's basically a revolution trying to turn the clock back to before 1937. It's a, it's a huge deal. And although this decision in itself doesn't achieve that, and in fact, as Kagan points out and demonstrates in her remarkably brilliant dissent, probably this decision doesn't make a hell of a lot of difference in terms of the way the CSPB actually is going to work. This is the biggest shot that the court has fired in the direction of dismantling the entire federal government as an as an effective institution. Ron, do you buy that basic analysis of why this is near and dear to the heart of the no longer new conservatives? I agree with Larry his analysis. I do think that, in fact, rolling back delegation doctrine, I think, is a bigger threat to the future of the administrative state than this than this uh, appointment and removal issue. Give us 30 seconds on, on what that means. So the question is really what kinds of decisions can be left to administrative agencies versus being having to made by the Congress itself. And that was the doctrine that really substantially blew apart when the court was on the wrong side of the New Deal and until the court reversed itself. And I think that, to me, is the thing that really puts the administrative state at risk. That's also another part of the same legal movement Larry's talking about. I think this appointments thing is a particular sticking point for legal conservatives. I do think two things about this case. One, I think Chief Justice Roberts' opinion on the one hand, Justice Kagan's dissent on the other hand, these are the two opinions from the term most likely to be reprinted in constitutional law and administrative law case books for the foreseeable future, okay? Generations and generations and generations of law students are going to read these two opinions. I also do think it's worth saying, as Justice Kagan did, as someone who's been in the White House as a, both a legal scholar, genius herself, and also a practical, experienced executive branch official, the practical implication of this, as opposed to delegation doctrine, may be much less. In fact, if you think about the CFPB itself, what we know, what you know, Harry, is that President Trump was ready to remove the independent director of the CFPB for cause, in quotes, because he was just going to drum up something and claim he had mismanaged the agency and fired him anyway. It's the lying principle that Dahlia says. It's the lying principle. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yes, maybe. Who knows how the court would have parsed that out? I'm just saying, in practice, I mean, Justice Kagan points out, on the one hand, there are four other agencies that have this appointment structure. They're big. Social Security Administration is one of them. Federal Housing uh, Financing Administration is another one of them. But it also makes the point that actually, in essence, since the Civil War, Congress has set up this kind of thing only four times, five times. It's not that frequently occurring. If you believe that the multi-member agencies like FTC, SEC are truly protected, that's what Roberts says, let's see, then you know how big an impact this really has, not totally clear to me. But certainly the philosophy embodied in Roberts' opinion, the genius embodied in Justice Kagan's dissent, we are going to read those over and over again for years to come. John Roberts and Elena Kagan are, are two sides of the same coin. They are such remarkably similar characters, despite the differences. And one of the ways in which I think both of them have just tremendous EQ, ability to read the room, very, very deft readers of a situation. And I think they're both singularly good at that. And just to Ron's point, 
they're both such phenomenal writers. And I just, you know, I have to commend to folks, you, you flicked it at Harry, but we should say it explicitly. Here's Elena Kagan in dissent. Quote, the majority offers the civics class version of separation of powers. Call it the schoolhouse rock definition of the phrase. See schoolhouse rock, exclamation mark. And then she goes on to cite, you know, YouTube videos of schoolhouse rock. I mean, she's just really masterful at the send up, the scoffing, the really, really, this is only one administrator as opposed to a different structure. Come on, you're gunning for that too. And then and then also just noting why the CFPB was set up, what it was designed to do, this very, very careful coda saying, we built this organization, this country built it for a reason, and that's what's going to be affected. And I just think it's so remarkable to see the two of them when they really face off in this way in a majority and a dissent, because they're both just so good at it. And they've done it before. And, you know, and this is, we're a hometown crowd, but I, I really would say that that Kagan, A, she's broadened the possibilities of Supreme Court writing. She shifts in this opinion, as she has in the past, implicitly into a sort of a second person directly talking to the people as opposed to Roberts. And, I, I, you know, I think for the combination of technical chops and occasional soaring or really perfect little paragraphs, I, I think she is. the I, Roberts, a great craftsperson, but I, I think Kagan is, is really the gold standard of writing on the court. But you're right. A few terms now. How many has it been that they've been together? Something like nine. And, and I can think of two or three other instances where the term has ended with a kind of Ali Frazier back and forth between the, the two of them that I think people will study. But she actually says, kind of contra to Ron, that the practical implications are pretty big here because she says what should be the guiding principle, the, the majority kind of makes up this, what she calls an anti-concentration of power principle. What really should matter is if the political branches get together and say, here's a good idea. Here's a good way to split the baby in this instance. So she suggests at least that there will be, at least by the rationale of the opinion, all manner of practical New Deal-like solutions, some of which will be right, some of which will be wrong, that this will just take off the table for the political branches. She she sees, I think, a bigger potential practical impact than Ron suggests. Harry, I, I agree very much with you. I think apart from the brilliant style, I mean, she, she does talk directly to the reader. She says the question, which by now you're well equipped to answer is this. I mean, it's just a brilliant exercise in persuasion. Apart from that, and apart from the devastating logic, she's basically saying, the, the stupidity of the majority and its failure to recognize how government works shows how brilliant the framers were in not tying Congress's hands as much as Roberts and his colleagues would. She makes a powerful case that this is a direct assault on the great case of McCulloch v. Maryland, which I don't think she mentions, but which she might as well. The point is that this is a constitution designed to last for the ages it was never designed to set things up in three completely separate silos. And she demonstrates more devastatingly than I've ever seen done how the formalistic approach of reading the Constitution the way Roberts does here is going to basically destroy the effectiveness of government. What essentially she does in this case convinces me that the Roberts approach, which is not quite as extreme as Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Alito and Thomas, but almost is in not really going to last. 
she's written an opinion that will, I think, be in case books 50 years from now, not just 10. And his is going to be in the dustbin of history. Ron, Ron is dead on. This will, I think this is the argument why this might have been the bigger battle so far of the whole term. I, we could talk about this much longer. I, I'd just like to take three minutes, though, because everyone here now has adverted to the remarkable power that a combination of, of practical circumstance and tactical genius have now invested in the chief justice, who not only assigns the opinions, but pretty much, she, I think he is has been the fifth vote in all five, four votes. And I just want to ask this question. When when Kennedy was the pivotal vote, there you know sophisticated advocates framed their arguments in terms of the things that they thought would attract him, the kinds of arguments he might be soft for. Now, what happens in the new in this new day, especially given as Dahlia has said, the great kind of sophistication and self possession that Roberts already has? What kinds of arguments will the best advocates be making? to specifically try to pluck off that fifth Roberts vote in the coming terms. Geez, you know, as someone who has taught both Roberts and Hagan, you'd think I might have some ideas about this. And argued 35 cases. I have to say I almost draw a blank. I mean, appealing to him means talking in ways that he believes can be made easily understandable. He really doesn't like things that are going to sound obscure. He loves simplification. He loves things that will fit on a bumper sticker. Ultimately, though he's a brilliant legal mind and writer, he's not, in my view, quite as brilliant as Kagan. But you have to, I don't mean talk down to him, but you have to give him things he can work with. Take his fundamental ideology as a given. You're not going to move him there, but try to find categories that will enable him to believe he's advancing his interests in the long run while doing something in the short run that makes legal sense. I I think I would probably say, and I've been saying this just this term, I think with Roberts, it was essential this term to look at the whole board. And I think in any of the cases we've discussed where he flipped and voted with the liberal wing, he would have done something entirely different if all of these cases hadn't been the sort of three-car pile-up clown show. Everything was on the docket this term. And then you had to sort of reverse engineer what are the things that he's gettable on because they're not his issues. And I think that, you know, we know what he cares passionately about. He cares passionately about voting. He cares passionately about race. I think he cares passionately about making sure that big business is happy. And that at least gives you, I think, some clue to the places that he defected this year. But I would say there are some rock-solid principles, and I would submit that voting is one of them, where you're just not going to get him. I think the 5-4 late-night decision about Alabama curbside voting is a good example. I'm not sure he's gettable on some issues. And so in addition to, I completely align myself with Larry, which is to say I think there's a form of argument that is absolutely going to work for him. And I think people are going to be looking to pick off Kagan and Breyer and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and create some kind of a a middle bulge around centrists at the court. But I think the real issue is it's hard to look at any of these cases in isolation because I think they were pinging off each other all year. 
Yeah, I mean, if I could just build on that, I agree with both what Larry and Dahlia said. I, I do think there's three things about Roberts. I think if there is a philosophy here, what's really interesting and different about him versus Kennedy. Kennedy, you could understand what the philosophy was. People could say it was fuzzy or, or kind of too vague, but you knew what he was going for here. I think if there's a philosophy with Roberts, it's around the idea of the court as an institution trying to restore some of the dignity and legitimacy it lost with Bush versus Gore. We're all the products of our own time. He's the first post-Bush versus Gore chief justice. I think he's trying to think about how to give the court a less political, a less partisan image. I think that's part of these decisions. And I think the sloppiness of the Trump administration in the DACA case, the ballsiness of the Louisiana law to mimic the Texas law here, I think he's just trying to shave off some of the sharp edges and redeem the court a little bit as an institution. I do think, as Dahlia alluded to before, he is playing the long game. Even a ruling that may seem somewhat liberal may have the seeds of future destruction in it. I think if you think about Bostock, the Title VII ruling, this term was the embrace of textualism there, a one-two punch to eventually take down affirmative action later on. Just want to flag that as a possibility. And then finally, I'd say, you know, as Dahlia said, it's the whole board. We're having this conversation before the Supreme Court rules on Trump's tax return, on the religious exemption case that are coming the week after July 4th. And it's possible that, you know, Roberts looked at all these votes, lined them all up, picked the things he was going to go right on in some cases, picked a few things to kind of do to look like he's balanced. And when we add this all up, this may look very different a week from now than it looks today. I think these are all great points. I'd only add to them, this might be cynical on my part, but I'm trying to think of the counterexample of this. I knew him, as did others, I think in the SG's office, he's a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, and when there are real stakes for one party or another, I think that will matter to him. But the, the only argument kind of rhetorical strategy I would think of is to try to present one's position as very much incremental, shaving off, as Ron says, and playing to this notion of modesty and the court as taking baby steps to the extent you can win those sorts of rhetorical battles with your opponent. All right, another huge topic for the ages, which we'll talk in terms to come, but we are out of time for what's been a fantastic hour. Thank you to everyone. We have just a couple minutes for our final feature of Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And this today is from Jamie Barwell, who asks, who will win the three Trump financial records cases? High burden, no absolute immunity. And I'm just kind of curious, that's speaking specifically to the congressional cases, yes? No, I I think it's both. It's going to be, you won't be able to just do fishing expeditions into the presidency, even into private pre-presidential papers. But the idea that being president will give you a total immunity will be rejected. That's what I would think. Gotcha. But that'll imply even in the Vance case that they might remand to see whether he's made an initial showing of special need. Yes. That they might remand in all of them. My answer was going to be kick the can down road. Nice. Damn, that was mine. Don't need that definite article. (laughs) Canned kicked, Trump stalls. (laughs) In four words, too. He beat me. (laughs) And my five is agree, as always, with Larry. Thank you very much to Dahlia, Ron, and Lawrence Tribe Emeritus. 
And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Or on Patreon, where we post ad-free episodes, but also discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. We've had, I think, five just this week, including conversations about Hong Kong, Princeton, Larry Tribe, and the Russian Bounty. And follow our special series of interviews with potential running mates for Joe Biden. We've just published a one-on-one with me and Stacey Abrams that I think is as thoughtful and nuanced a discussion with her as I've heard. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Rebecca Lopatin. Our editor is Justin Wright. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are contributing writers. Production assistance by Ayo Asabamiro. And our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to all 10 of the former tribe students and fan club members for sharing their gratitude to Lawrence Tribe for his great effect on their lives. Our gratitude is always to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.